I'm Sarah Kapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Early this morning at 6am Moscow time, Russian President Vladimir Putin made a short address to the people of his country. I have taken the decision to conduct a special military operation, he said. Its goal will be to defend people who for eight years are suffering persecution and genocide by the Kyiv regime, he added. Anyone who tries to interfere with us or create threats for our country and our people must know that Russia's response will be immediate and will lead you to such consequences as you have never before experienced in your history. Until early this morning, some here in Kiev doubted that he would do it. Not anymore. Within minutes of Putin's speech, explosions could be heard near major Ukrainian cities, including the country's capital, Kyiv. We can confirm there have been a number of large explosions here in the capital, Kyiv. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian... Irish Times reporter Dan McLaughlin, who has been covering tensions between Russia and Ukraine for months now, is back in Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv. 35 kilometers from the Russian border. People, you know, for now at least are determined and, you know, they're sticking together. Again, it's too soon to know, but there might be terrible losses out there already. You know, I mean, dozens and dozens of people, I'm sure, have been killed already. Might, or, might already be hundreds, I don't know. I spoke to him earlier about how the Russian invasion could change Ukraine, Europe and the world. Dan, you arrived in Kharkiv yesterday. Now, Kharkiv is just 35 kilometres from the Russian border. Can you describe to me uh, what was happening last night as Russian strikes began hitting parts of the city? Yeah, I arrived yesterday here and there was definitely a feeling already that things were changing, that people were preparing for something. They obviously didn't know when it would come and it came at around 5am this morning. I wasn't woken by explosions, but I was uh, woken by a message asking me what was going on and what I was hearing. Shortly after that, about 5.30, I did hear several explosions coming in, rolling across the city from the outskirts. I went out, you know, within minutes, went round to the local shops and I could see already people were up and about. They were getting essential supplies. They were filling up their cars with petrol and with luggage, some people getting ready to leave. Um, Other people were preparing to kind of hunker down in the city. So they were getting all their essential supplies in, getting in water, getting in, you know, whatever they may need for the days ahead. There's no fighting in the city centre at the moment, but certainly, you know, periodically we hear rumbles from the outskirts. This is a big city of 1.4 million. Um, It's well known for its universities. There are loads of students here, including lots of international students, but it's also an important industrial city. Um, and even, you know, military industrial stuff as well. For example, there are tank, there's a big tank factory here. There are other things that are very crucial to the to Ukrainian industry and the Ukrainian war effort. So it's definitely being so close to the border, being Ukraine's second city, being an important, as I say, industrial center as well. It's definitely a key target for Russia and a key point that Ukraine will want to defend. You mentioned the fact that it's a big student city. Have you been speaking to many students this morning about how they're feeling about the situation? 
Yeah, I spoke to a few people in the shops. And they were saying, you know, they were they were as confused and as worried as everyone else. Some had been woken up by sounds of explosions. Uh, others got messages and, you know, were, were messages from worried relatives, messages from friends asking what they were going to do. And they were figuring things out, you know, local... I mean, Ukrainian students were talking about maybe going back to their parents' places. Um, foreign students obviously are kind of stuck here and they're just hoping for the best, hoping things will calm down quickly. But also it's, it's not a, just a simple matter of, for example, moving away from the Russian border because, as we've seen, these strikes are taking place all over the country. Other big cities are being hit. So people are wondering what's best, you know, whether to sit down, sit tight, and, and kind of try and ride it out or try and make a break for somewhere. But when they check on social media and they listen to the, to the Ukrainian news, they're also seeing and hearing reports from all over the country that, um, that make it very unclear as to where, where a safe place is right now, anywhere here. And Dan, what have you been able to find out about how prepared Kharkiv is for the worst situation? I mean, do they have bunkers ready? Do they have emergency supplies? What kind of state intervention is in place here? Yeah, this was very striking yesterday when I arrived that all the city authorities, I think, Kharkiv as well and, and Kiev and other big cities have kind of tried to keep a lid on panic so they haven't said too much about what might happen if the worst came to the worst. But yesterday arriving in Kharkiv, the mayor of the city, Ihor Tirakhov, was out actually inspecting bomb shelters he was telling people that everything is in place. He's checked the system. Everything's ready to go. He was telling the city that its metro network can take more than 100,000 people if necessary inside stations and give them a, a place, a safe place to shelter from any potential airstrikes. But we haven't heard... I mean, I'm right in the city centre and, and I haven't heard an air raid siren, for example, going off, or announcements being made around town telling people to, to take shelter. And he did say that that is something that would happen if necessary yesterday. And again, this morning, while there was lots of, lots of concern, of course, lots of, lots of worry, lots of confusion, people figuring out what to do, I wouldn't say there was mass panic. I mean, even in the, the shop where I was at sort of 6 a.m. this morning, I mean, it was ridiculously busy for 6 a.m. on a Thursday morning. But people were being very calm. They were being very polite to each other. Um, there was no sense of just kind of pouring everything into shopping trolleys and, and, and making a quick getaway. People were still, you know, trying to be decent to each other and keep a lid on the obvious fear that was, that was growing and which is, you know, I mean, with reports of, of Russian tanks on the edge of town, all those fears are just, you know, growing by, by the hour, if not the minute at the moment, as to what, what the next hours and days hold for Kharkiv. The fact that there hasn't been much panic yet, I'd really like to ask you, Dan, what does that say about the people of Kharkiv and the people of Ukraine? I hate to say it, but I feel like if something like this was happening in Western Europe, we'd be responding very differently. Why do you think the people of Ukraine, but specifically Eastern Ukraine, have this ability to just say, OK, let's just take this step by step? Well, I, I, don't, I mean, I think it may be a couple of things. Um, one, I mean, here in Kharkiv, you know, if we go back again to the Maidan revolution, the protests and the start of the war, which later became confined to Donbass. But there were great fears at that point that Kharkiv might fall under the control of these Russian-led separatists. Um, there was street fighting in the city. The local administration building was taken, I think, twice 
by these pro-Russian elements. They raised the Russian flag over the roof of the building, but Ukrainian forces came in and kicked them out, and they made sure that the country stayed under, sorry, the city stayed under government control. But Donbass, you know, this region that is divided now between separatists and government control, it's just down the road. I mean, it's probably a couple of hundred kilometers to what has been until today, the front line. But Kharkiv was very much involved with taking in people who were displaced from that region. Um, lots of, you know, families here obviously have had people going off to fight in Donbass. So there is this feeling, there has been this feeling that a conflict, if it's not right here, it is close. And who knows, something could spill over at some point. Russia, as you mentioned at the, at the start there, is only 35 kilometers away. So on some level, people have got used to a, a, an element of uncertainty. And I think that's just kind of ramped up a bit. I think when we spoke before about this, it's not like going from zero to 10 overnight on their level of concern. You know, they've already been at, I don't know, like three, four, five for several years. Also, you know, there are a lot of people here who just live tough lives. You know, they, they don't make much money. They live in difficult conditions. They live from month to month on their wage or their pension. Um, they, they learn to make ends meet. And they often have to rely a lot on friends, on relatives to make that happen. Just on a daily, day-to-day level of, 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 of existence, really. They also have a certain kind of uncertainty, but which also gives them a kind of durability and a resilience, which I think at the moment, at least judging by... What I, you know, speaking to people now and, and speaking to people in the build-up to this, that will stand them in good stead for whatever's coming. We've been talking about the possibility of this happening for weeks. We spoke to you in January about this. But nothing prepares you for when it actually happens, when you wake up to the news of something of this magnitude. And the world does feel different today, even in a very small place like Ireland, far, far away from Ukraine. Things feel different. It kind of feels like Russia's invasion of Ukraine changes everything and that we're entering a new sort of era. I think we are. I think, you know, it's, as you say, even, you know, until last night, really, this idea that uh, this could happen right in the middle of Europe to major European cities like Kiev, like Kharkiv, like, you know, the area in Western Ukraine. I don't know if Lviv has been hit, but certainly areas close to Lviv have been hit. I mean, these are major European cities that are, that are plugged into Europe and the rest of the world. Um, and the idea that um, all-out aggression, based on these outlandish claims that, that Putin's making about genocide in Donbass, about... Um, uh, a kind of a need to denazify, I think he said overnight, Ukraine. These are absolutely outrageous claims, absolutely baseless claims um, to try and mask compl- all out aggression from Russia against a major state. This is the biggest state uh, that is solely in Europe. 41 million people, something like that, um, live here. Sorry. And uh, excuse me. You're okay. Sorry, I just have to speak to the guys at the door. One second. Can we just interrupt for a sec? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Take your time, second. yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. Just the guy came and um, gave me a key because he said if the power goes, there's like a card system to get in and out. It's not going to work. So he gave me a key to, to get in and out. So, so yeah, I mean, for this to happen um, in a country of 41 million people, 
um, I think is really shocking. And that's what, of course, it shocks people here in Ukraine. And I'm sure, quite rightly, it shocks people in Europe and the rest of the world. And we will have to see how this plays out. I mean, Putin has said in this claim that he has to kind of denazify Ukraine as he sees it. I mean, that's suggesting that there is going to be some kind of purge if Russia takes over here. A purge of the leadership, arrests, and we just don't know what that will bring. You know, on the other hand, we've got Ukrainians saying we've never been more united. We're, um, we've never been more determined to resist Russia and we will never accept the rule from, from Moscow and from Putin. So, you know, it's a, those things in combination make for what could be a very long, drawn-out battle. And even if Russia, with its overwhelming military power, manages to take control of Ukraine in the next days or weeks, um, I just can't see Ukraine, big country that it is, incredibly hard to control and to occupy. The amount of forces you would need in this country to occupy it with 40 million people here, it's very hard to imagine how Russia would do that. So we could be looking at a long, drawn-out conflict. You know, people are talking here about guerrilla warfare, um, You know, lots of people, thousands and thousands of people have signed up to the territorial defense units that Ukraine has has ramped up in the last few weeks. Ukraine is making it easy for those people to acquire weapons. I just saw a message going out even, I think in the last couple of hours it was, from the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, saying, everyone who wants, we want to give everyone who wants a weapon to defend Ukraine, we want to give them that weapon to defend your country on your squares. That's what we might be looking at now. So even if Russia comes in, declares victory in a few days or whenever it is, you know, for millions and millions of Ukrainians, this will not end until Russia is, is driven back out of the country. As you've mentioned, and just there, the Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, he addressed his country again t- today, this time via video filmed on his phone. And he said that Ukraine had severed diplomatic relations with Russia and he's vowed to defend the country. Zelensky's a young man. He's under serious pressure right now, but he seems to be handling the situation calmly and with composure. But he must be pretty worried for his own safety. Yeah, I think, I mean, he's under enormous pressure, unimaginable pressure. This is a guy who until 2019 was was a popular television comedian. Mm. He could never have imagined what he was getting into. Um, But something interesting and surprising has happened, I think, in the last couple of weeks or even the last week. I mean, lots of things when he was, you know, you could say a normal leader of a normal country, he came under criticism for lots of things, not doing enough to fight corruption, not doing enough to boost the economy, not doing enough to try and end the war, lots of different things. Mm. But in the last week or so, people have, you know, when he, for example, went to the Munich security conference at the weekend, when lots of people advised him not to, he spoke really well. And even people who criticized him a lot up to that point said, this was a great decision. And he really spoke well on behalf of the country and represented Ukraine very well. Um, when he spoke last night, he spoke directly to Russians in Russian, um, appealing to them to stop this. There are over 2,000 kilometers of common border between us. Your army is along that border now. And this is really interesting, you know, because there's this claim from Putin that Ukraine has become this anti-Russia, that it's being run by Nazis or, or is, you know, influenced by Nazis. Zelensky's a Jewish man. 
from central eastern Ukraine who grew up speaking Russian. He speaks Russian much better than he speaks Ukrainian. And last night he spoke directly to Russians saying, stop this, please. Don't allow all the relations we've built up over all, over all these hundreds of years to be destroyed by the man who's in the Kremlin at the moment. And that was, again, was really powerful, I think. And this is working for him now, I think. He comes across as being genuine. He comes across as being someone who, you know, desperately doesn't want this to happen. He doesn't want bloodshed. He doesn't want conflict. And as Putin, with his recent appearances, has become, it seems, more and more isolated, more and more extreme, more and more radical and belligerent, I think just the sheer kind of simplicity, if you like, and, and you know, humanity almost of Zelensky is really coming across as a man who's not a politician. He's not a career politician. He's certainly not a career security service officer like Putin was. I address all Ukrainians and primarily Ukrainian servicemen who have already taken the first enemy's strike and are repelling it with dignity. We are aware of the Ukrainian armed forces strength. You are courageous. You are unbroken. You are Ukrainian. You know, he's a guy, as I say, he was an actor and a comedian and an entertainer until 2019. Now finds himself in this position, and I think a lot of people can relate to him. And a lot of people, while obviously thinking of their own worries, they also feel for him now as well in this position. Um, but he's, his stature has grown, I think, in this, in this crisis. Um, and that, that really um, speaks well of how he's handled it so far in these really, really difficult conditions and situ this really difficult situation. Can I also ask, Dan, Ukrainians you've been speaking to in, in Kharkiv, what do they say about the international response to what's going on? Do they want Western nations to do more, to perhaps have more of a physical presence within Ukraine as opposed to just rhetoric and sanctions? They're certainly grateful for all the, the diplomatic and financial support and all the weapons that have come in recently, especially in the last couple of months. New anti-tank weapons, new shoulder launch, rocket launchers and things like this. Um, but as we're seeing now, um, and when there's a kind of chance to analyze how the, the first hours of this conflict have gone, um, the, big, the big thing that, that Ukraine's lacking is an air defense system, for example. It's got nothing that can stop Russian bombers, has a, very, has a tiny air force, nothing that can stop these Russian missiles coming in. And this is something that the West has refused to sell to Ukraine or, or, or provide to Ukraine in, in recent years. And that is the real strike force now of the Russian military. That's doing enormous damage. Before Russian troops even came into the country, those, those weapons that Ukraine has been unable to stop have done huge damage. I mean, one thing now that Ukrainians are talking about, Ukrainian politicians, you know, is there some way of introducing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, because the thing Putin has always tried to avoid, and I think is still desperate to avoid, is a conflict with NATO. So if I, you know, I think that Ukrainians argue this, and I, I tend to agree with them on this, that if there were NATO planes in the sky over Ukraine, just creating a, a safe space, Russia would not risk a conflict with NATO by continuing to send in missile strikes and the Air Force and so on. Whether, you know, Western countries are willing to do that, I don't know. But um, certainly, that would be something that, that Ukrainian, all Ukrainians would welcome now. So they certainly think the West has done a lot, but they, they don't think the West has done enough. And that's been proven today. You know, all the sanctions, all the rhetoric was not enough to stop Putin launching this enormous war in the middle of Europe. And in that sense, I think it's, that's, that's the clearest proof that Western policy towards Putin has failed. That's where we stand today. How do you think people 
in places like Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Hungary even, are feeling watching parts of Western Ukraine even be impacted by this. I mean, what do you, you know these parts of Europe very well. You've spent a lot of time in most of these countries. How do you think they're feeling right now? It's uh, horrifying for them to see this. Um, They feel they're definitely under NATO protection. That's the key thing. They will feel so grateful that they managed to get into NATO while it was still possible for all these countries. But still, I mean, seeing this happen to big cities, just a relatively short, you know, ride away from them, will be very, very scary. Um, And seeing how Putin has framed this whole thing, seeing how he's framed it as a chance for him, as he sees justifiably, to to redraw the map of Europe, to roll back the borders, to, to go back on the way the political map of Europe has developed over the last century, that will be really, really scary. I mean, when Putin talked about Ukraine being an illegitimate country that didn't really have a right to exist historically, other countries, when we think about the Baltic states, for example, who also struggled for centuries to get their own statehood and independence, they will see that as a, a you know as a, as a massive warning sign, um, and they will want you know as we see reports of NATO preparing to send more more forces into uh, to the eastern flank to defend these countries. That is exactly what they will want to see. They will welcome that reassurance because they will feel like. You know, everything is now kind of on the table and they don't know what what Putin may try and do. You know, whether there's some kind of spillover could be from Belarus. Belarus also borders these countries. We've seen Belarus using migrants to put enormous pressure on Lithuania and on Poland at the back end of last year. And they'll also brace themselves potentially when we think about Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, countries that directly border Ukraine, they'll be looking at looking for a potential influx of refugees. I mean, if this goes on for a while, Ukraine is a big country that can absorb a lot of internal displacement. You know, it did uh, back in 2014, but this is a much bigger conflict now. So those countries bordering Ukraine will not only be looking to for reassurance and help to bolster their own security, but potentially set themselves up to deal with an influx of refugees if if that happens in the coming days and weeks. Dan, thanks so much for your time and please take care of yourself there. Thanks. That's all for today. My thanks again to Dan McLaughlin for speaking with us from Eastern Ukraine and also thanks to Brian O'Brien here in Dublin. This is a fast-moving story, so for full coverage of developments in Ukraine and the international response to Russia's attack, from Dan McLaughlin and our other foreign correspondents, go to irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.